You're listening to WRCT Pittsburgh, 88.3 FM. This is Overheard. Tonight, Naomi Klein, author of No Logo and the Shock Doctrine, lectures on the rise of disaster capitalism. The lecture was recorded in McConaughey Auditorium on the Carnegie Mellon campus on April 14, 2008. Thank you so much. Thank you, Annika, for that absolutely lovely introduction. Uh, I, of course, want to thank the Activities Board of Carnegie Mellon. Uh, and it is most certainly an interesting time to be in Pittsburgh. Um, I understand that I had quite the opening act this morning um, with Clinton and Obama both speaking in Pittsburgh this morning. And, uh, and apparently Chelsea was here. Um, she just left. I actually had to wrestle her for this room. She wanted it. I won. Um, <laughs> Annika had something to do with that. Um, I think some of you may have read, or I know some of you have read, uh, my book, The Shock Doctrine. Uh, I've already had some really interesting conversations with students here. Um, I'm going to assume that not all of you have read it, or that very many of you have not read it. Um, and uh, so I'm going to start tonight with some, with some basic introduction, uh, some basic uh, uh, of introducing of the themes of the book, some basic definitions, uh, starting with what I mean by the shock doctrine. Uh, what I mean by the shock doctrine is a philosophy of power. It is a philosophy of power that holds that if you want to push through a radical free market agenda, what's called a free market agenda, privatization, deregulation, cuts to government spending, the best time to do it is in the aftermath of some kind of a shock or crisis that sends a society reeling, uh, that makes people afraid, that makes them want to trust experts and authority figures who seem to have it all figured out. And the enabling shock for this shock doctrine uh, can be any variety of things. And what I do in the book is I track the history, the rise of market fundamentalism uh, through a history of shocks and crises. So I'm looking at everything from military coups in Latin America to massacres in China, the Tiananmen Square massacre, uh, to economic meltdowns, severe hyperinflation crises that, uh, that, that takes a, a, a country that thought it was doing well, like South Korea in the 90s, and suddenly sends it into profound economic crisis. And in that window of opportunity, an institution like the International Monetary Fund comes in and imposes what used to be called structural adjustment. Um, so these are all enabling shocks for the shock doctrine. Other enabling shocks are terrorist attacks, like September 11th. And I'm not arguing that this is a conspiracy. I'm not arguing that the shocks are planned so that they can be exploited. What I'm arguing is that at the highest reaches of economic power, there is a profound understanding of the utility of crises. This understanding has been in place for a long time. And so the right exists in a state of acute disaster preparedness, acute intellectual disaster preparedness. Would that they were in other forms of disaster preparedness. I think the residents of New Orleans would have appreciated that. No, I'm talking about the use of the infrastructure of right-wing think tanks and many universities to keep those free market policies ready for when the next disaster hits. Okay. 
That's what I mean by the shock doctrine. What I mean by disaster capitalism is how this plays out on the ground, how this plays out on the ground. So what I document is how disasters get harnessed to push through a very radical agenda that can't advance uh, during non-crisis uh, uh, times without these sort of states of exception. Um, but I also am talking about a, a, another phenomenon, which is treating disasters themselves as market opportunities, as opportunities for deeper privatization. So privatizing the response to the disasters themselves, uh, whether privatized firefighting, and I'm going to come to that, or private security like Blackwater. Um, one of the things that we're seeing right now is that this privatization agenda has been so successful that if we think about the state as sort of an octopus that has all of these arms, like water, electricity, the airwaves, um, all of the arms of the state have already been cut off and privatized. So all that's left is the core. And that core is actually what springs into action when there is a crisis or a disaster. And so that really is the final frontier for the shock doctrine. Um, so those are the terms. And, and uh, I, start, I start the book with a quote from Milton Friedman. He wrote it in 1982. Uh, and I think it's a really relevant quote um, right now because he was writing it about the utility of economic crises. And as we know, we are in one of those right now. He said, only a crisis, actual or perceived, produces real change. When that crisis occurs, the actions that are taken depend on the ideas that are lying around. The ideas that are lying around. And then he went on to say that, I believe, is our basic functions uh, to get, have ideas ready and available for when the politically impossible becomes politically inevitable. Um, so as, as I said, what I do in the book is I, I track the history of the rise of the ideology that Milton Friedman represents. And for those of you who don't know who he is, I know many of you do, um, he really was, he, he died two years ago, the, the kind of grand guru of this movement. Uh, he originally taught at the University of Chicago, uh, went on to the Hoover Institution, uh, but wrote many books that popularized the idea that the only acceptable role for government, and Friedman was very uh, straightforward about this, was, in his opinion, defense and policing. Um, everything else should be privatized. Uh, the post office, you name it, national parks, all of it. Uh, and he had a young disciple uh, named Donald Rumsfeld. Donald Rumsfeld loved Milton Friedman. Uh, he used to audit his classes at the University of Chicago. He described himself as a young pup studying at the feet of geniuses. And what's interesting about Donald Rumsfeld is he took Friedman's ideology even farther than Friedman himself because Donald Rumsfeld believed that you could take that ethos that anything, that, that, that corporations could take over the government into those areas that Friedman had actually said were the only acceptable areas, defense and policing. Um, and I'll be coming back to that. Uh, I'm not going to be dwelling on that history because I think it is a little difficult to do that um, in the time that we have, but during the question period, if any of you want to to talk about that history more, I, I would certainly be happy to do so. Um, what I want to do today uh, uh, is, um, is talk about, in particular, one present-day example. Um, and the reason for that is because I just got back from New Orleans. I just spent a few days in New Orleans. 
And whenever I go to New Orleans, I get mad. <laughs> um, and I, I go there whenever I can. I go there because, you know, I do a lot of speaking about this theory uh, of disaster capitalism. Um, in New Orleans, it's not a theory. <laughs> uh, New Orleans people are living this. And it doesn't take much explaining. Uh, they use the term disaster capitalism to describe what's happened to them. Um, they have some solutions they'd like to propose. A friend of mine in New Orleans named Sakitsoni, who organizes um, immigrant workers in the city, um, he, he, he says to me, you know, they have disaster ca capitalism. We need disaster collectivism. Uh, and um, they're working on building that in that city right now. So it's, you know, it keeps me honest to go to New Orleans because it reminds me that this is not a theory. This is a reality that is disaster, the disaster capitalism capital of the world. Um, but also because there are so many uh, inspiring community organizers who are responding to this, uh, trying to resist it, trying to build the alternatives on the ground. Um, I think it's important to talk about New Orleans because it shows the logic of disaster capitalism and what is at stake. I also want to talk about New Orleans because we're not talking about New Orleans enough. This is an election year, and a major American city was drowned two and a half years ago, and large parts of it have still not been rebuilt. Half the city has not returned, and it's shocking how seldomly we hear the candidates even referencing New Orleans, let alone going there. Um, so let's talk about New Orleans more, because New Orleans was left behind uh, when a hurricane hit that city and the levees broke. Um, and it's still being left behind. People there feel very much like they are still on those roofs waving and no one is listening. Uh, I also think it's important to talk about New Orleans for the same reason why I have this weird obsession, I suppose, with disaster zones. You know, I've been in Iraq, Sri Lanka after the tsunami, um, Argentina after the economic collapse. I have been living in shocked places uh, for the past five years. And I think what draws me to them is that I feel like what we see in these moments is a glimpse of our future if we're not careful. And I feel that very strongly about New Orleans, and a lot of people in New Orleans feel it as well. Uh, but like I said, it's also, it also points us to another way forward in the alternatives that people are building uh, in the rubble of that failed system. I felt the same way when I was in Argentina after the economic crisis, and we made a documentary film about workers who occupied their closed factories and turned them into workers' cooperatives. Um, so, New Orleans. Let's remember that New Orleans was not drowned by a hurricane. New Orleans was drowned by ideology. The ideology that drowned New Orleans is the one that we are discussing here tonight. Now, I think a lot of you how many of you were born after 1980? Right. So I think for those of you who were born after 1980, it's hard to even think of this as an ideology because it's all you've ever known. It has been the air we breathe since 1980. Uh, and it goes by a lot of names. It's a shapeshifter. I refer to it as market fundamentalism. Some people call it laissez-faire capitalism. Reagan just called it the market. At the time, they called it Reaganomics. Um, but I think it is useful 
because it is invisible, because it has been the default ideology for so long, to actually define its terms. Because when you have a default ideology, you stop actually needing to define it. It's just the way things work. It's just the way things work. But there is an ideology. And when this ideology was advancing, it had to make the arguments, right? Um, so this is the basic principles of laissez-faire. It puts the pursuit of profits for large corporations and economic growth before pretty much every other priority in a society. And the idea is that what's good for those corporations and their ability to create economic growth will eventually be good for all of us because of the trickle-down benefits of that growth. Now, what has happened since 1980 is that our societies around the world have been steadily re-engineered in the interests of these corporate players along the lines of that theory. And this is the story of our time. The way I think about it is, um, is as actually a liberation movement. Since I started thinking about it as a liberation movement, it started to become a little bit more alive for me. You know, we think of liberation movements as being just the purview of the oppressed. You know, women have liberation movements and people of color have liberation movements and, and third world nations, gays and lesbians shackling, uh, 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 freeing themselves from shackles that confine them. Um, this is a different kind of liberation movement. This is a, a revolt of the elites. Uh, it's largely undeclared, but it's very real. It is a liberation movement from all of the constraints on capital uh, that stood in the way of the accumulation of profits. And that really is the story of our time. So if we think about you know, what, the what, what the policy goals of this liberation movement have been, it's being freed of big unions, being freed of high taxes, being freed of trade protections, um, being free to privatize that which used to be in the public realm. Um, and these ideas obviously are not new, but the significance of what happened in the 80s is that you had somebody in the White House, in the person of Ronald Reagan, who was a believer in this ideology, who, who was seen carrying Milton Friedman's capitalism and freedom on the campaign trail, uh, and saw the role of government as being the enabler of this ideology, this a sort of a kind of a corporate ballet. So government became not about doing, but undoing, uh, deregulating, uh, and, and standing up to the big unions, which of course is the, one of the first major acts of the Reagan administration in standing up to the air traffic controllers. So taking down the barriers to profit making. Uh, and we see the results in the looser regulations in all the public interest areas, regulating the financial sector. We're feeling the results of that major push, deregulation push, which actually began in the 70s. Um, we've seen it in the deregulation in the environmental sector. Um, but it's not only deregulation. It's, the deregula it's, it's, it's a dismantling of regulations that stand in the way of profit-making. There's a hyper-regulation when it is in the interests of profit-making. So 
that would be intellectual property, much tighter intellectual property protections, longer terms for drug companies, and so on. So even though it uses the rhetoric of not doing, there's actually some very aggressive doing that is part of this agenda. So fewer taxes, and that means less money to invest in public infrastructure, public services, like housing, health care, roads, bridges. Now this prepares the ground for privatization because then you have a public infrastructure that doesn't work, that can't maintain itself, and then the solution to privatize it starts to seem inevitable. And of course, this is a debate right now around the Pennsylvania Turnpike. Um, now, this is a very profitable model, and it has been globalized. You know, if we think about what free trade agreements are, they are essentially enshrining these rules across borders, whether using the World Trade Organization, GATT, um, or trade agreements between a few countries like NAFTA. Um, but once again, that liberating of capital so that they are able to move freely across borders and measuring success in whether a corporation has done well, whether their profits are going up, even if that meant closing a factory and moving overseas. I know I'm doing the basics of free trade, but I'm not really going to, I'm not assuming any knowledge here, so, because I know there's a real range. Um, so, what does this have to do with New Orleans? Well, let's start with the storm. Okay. Now, you can never say that any one weather event is directly related to climate change. We simply can't say that uh, because there were hurricanes, there have been hurricanes long before climate change. Um, but what we do know uh, is that UN climate scientists have directly linked the increased intensity of hurricanes to warming ocean temperatures, warming waters, more Category 5 hurricanes in the Gulf. And those warming temperatures are linked to the corporate liberation movement that I'm talking about because the right of big oil to pursue astronomical profits, $40 billion for ExxonMobil in a single year, is not challenged, despite the fact that people are struggling with the price of gas at the pump. Uh, so in the name of economic growth, uh, these oil companies are not reined in, but also within the ethos of laissez-faire, there is very little actual fair going on in terms of developing alternative energy solutions that are sustainable. So this is, I'm arguing, uh, a result can be traced back to the ideology itself. And in fact, that in this context, even the term natural disaster is something that we should problematize a little bit. Um, when I'm on campus, I use words like problematize just to fit in. Um, because you know, natural disasters are up, and these are UN figures, by 43, uh, 430% since 1975. So is that natural? Um, or is that a result of choices that we've made? And all, all the statistics that I use, I'm not doing heavy sourcing here, but obviously they're in the book, which is heavily sourced. And I should also say that there's a website that goes with the book where I've put a lot of the original source material that I use online. My research assistant is a librarian, and she's done this incredible job of getting the original source documents online. So anybody who wants to check those out, please do. Um, so weather was one factor. But when you go to New Orleans, they get really mad when you say that um, the disaster that hit that city was the result of a hurricane. Because by the time Katrina hit New Orleans, it was no longer a Category 5 hurricane. It had actually been downgraded to either a Category 1 hurricane or a tropical storm. Um, so 
what created the massive catastrophe in that city was a collision between heavy weather, not a Category 5 hurricane. It started as a Category 5 hurricane, but it was no longer one, okay? It was a collision between a big storm, heavy weather, and weak infrastructure, weakened infrastructure, okay? Now, that is also not ideologically neutral because those levees had been neglected despite all the warnings, as we know. Um, and this is part of a framework in which any investment in the public sphere was derided for so many years. That's what created, I would argue, a context in which that was possible. This is not just a New Orleans issue. This is what, why I think uh, New Orleans is our warning, should be our wake-up call, uh, because the American Society of Civil Engineers last year said that it would take $1.5 trillion to bring the bridges, roads, levees, dams in this country up to acceptable safety standards, right? Um, and last summer, of course, the, those statistics, those warnings came to life quite vividly when there were bridges collapsing and uh, subways flooding in New York, exploding steam pipes, and so on. Um, and it, those warnings are still not being heeded. Now, even if there aren't people standing before you making these free market arguments because they're too embarrassed, right? Because the, the, the promise of trickle down has so clearly not worked and the inequality figures are in, so it's actually hard to get someone who will, with a straight face, make these economic arguments. That doesn't mean that we're free from the logic. We're still living with this logic because when it came time to stimulate the American economy uh, in the face of a looming recession a couple of months ago, uh, the Republicans resisted all att attempts to include in that stimulus major investments in infrastructure, um, which could have been used, one, to create jobs, two, to transition a lot of dirty infrastructure into sustainable green infrastructure, uh, and rebuilt the weak bones of the country and address climate change at the same time and created jobs. That didn't happen. So we're still very much in the grips of this ideology, even if there's more shame around it. Um, so in New Orleans, the weakened levees, neglected and weakened, gave way when they were hit by that heavy weather. And the city flooded. And we saw yet more human-created disasters. We saw the profound inequality. That was when America discovered class again and race. Now we talk about it all the time, right, on CNN. Um, but that was the wake-up call. We saw the enormous stagnant unemployment, the soaring crime rates, a city where the police and the population were at war, right, even in the midst of a disaster. Uh, today in New Orleans, a statistic I just heard when I was there, 30% of, of, of the population of that city is incarcerated. It has the highest incarceration rates in the city. And we saw more failed public services, more failed public services particularly transportation, in the inability to run an effective evacuation. And we also saw a government that doesn't believe in governing. You know, Paul Krugman at the time called it the can't-do government, right? You had at the city level, because it wasn't just at the federal level, you had at the city level a, a municipal government whose idea of disaster preparedness was passing out DVDs, okay, and saying, you know, if it happens, you're on your own. Um, and you had FEMA, this empty shell, right? 
And, you know, FEMA was a laboratory, and I, I do talk about this in the book, that, that, that for the Bush administration, FEMA was a laboratory for this idea that you could outsource almost everything that the government was doing in-house. And the Department of Homeland Security, in which FEMA was a part, you know, was the bigger laboratory. And it was run very explicitly on this philosophy of across-the-board outsourcing. So then you had this FEMA where no one seemed to be home, right? You had this guy at the top, Michael Brown, who's used to organize weekend retreats for oil and gas executives. That's how they seem to have known him, okay? Uh, that's what he did. Um, that and run the Arabian Horsing Association. Um, I thought it was more relevant that he organized weekend retreats for oil and gas executives. But it, you know, one of the most striking moments uh, in that was that email that my, you know, we, we got to see Michael Brown's emails correspondence in the midst of the crisis. You can really tell what he was thinking at every stage. And, you know, and at the, just the bleakest moment, with 23,000 people stranded in the Superdome, he sends out an email to his assistant that says, can I quit yet? Um, and I mean, what's interesting about that, about, about that email to me was you know, the, one of the things that's so distinctive about this administration, it's, it's not new that people go from government jobs, you know, when their administration is no longer in office, then they go and work in the industries and apply for contracts to their former colleagues. What's interesting about this administration is they really don't wait. They're very impatient, you know. They'll stay, like, for, like, one year, two years, and, and they just immediately go and cash out. And Michael Brown is no exception. Um, he, despite the incredible mess he made and, and, and what one would consider a very bad reputation in disaster management, immediately reinvented himself um, as a disaster management um, uh, <laughs> consultant. Um, helping companies land contracts with FEMA. And his predecessor, Joe Alba, did the exact same thing. Uh, so if we think back to that moment uh, when the levees broke, there was that initial shock of where is the government. Um, and, but I would argue that there was, a, even though there was an ability to name many of these problems and to name this as a failure, uh, that progressives were far too tentative in laying the blame on anything beyond Bush incompetence. Uh, very few people really spoke of ideology, or, or if they did, it was in passing. And even fewer wanted to make a link between climate change and what was happening in New Orleans, because that was seen as too political. And I think that reticence to uh, score political points, if you will, makes, makes sense. I mean, I think it's a human impulse that we don't want to take advantage of a massive tragedy like that uh, to, to politicize it. And we heard that, you know, whenever people on the left did try to make any of these points, they were accused of politicizing the disaster, right? Now, here's the problem with that. Even if it is a lovely impulse, the right has no such qualms, all right? And you know, when I'm trying to explain, you know, what do I mean by disaster capitalism, uh, the, the most vivid example I can give is a meeting that took place at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, the Heritage Foundation is sort of ground zero of freedmanism in, in Washington. A meeting that took place on September the 13th, which was 14 days after the levees were breached. The city was still partially underwater. And the Heritage Foundation held this uh, gathering representatives from many of the other large think tanks, 
as well as Republicans from Congress, the Republican Study Group. And they had a meeting to come up with a list of free market solutions for Hurricane Katrina. Now, I have the list, and it's on the website, and I really urge you to read this list. Remember, two weeks after the levees break, and this is the wish list. This is how we use this disaster to push through all the things that we can't get through without one, okay? And using all of this public money, all of this taxpayer money that is about to be released in the name of reconstruction and aid to do anything but, okay? So the first item on the list is roll back Davis-Bacon. Davis-Bacon is the law that requires government contractors to pay the prevailing wage wherever they're doing business. Um, and Bush did do that, um, but he went back on it because there was an outcry, but by then a lot of the contractors had already hired. Um, they, uh, they came up, as I said, with 32 of these solutions in all. I'm not gonna read them all, but there was uh, make the entire area a flat tax free enterprise zone make the entire region an economic competitiveness zone, which meant comprehensive tax incentives, waiving of regulation. Okay, so this disaster that in so many ways is created by this very ideology. Another one of the demands called for parents to be able to, to be given vouchers rather than rebuild the public schools in New Orleans. Um, there were, there were uh, calls for gifts for the oil and gas industry. Uh, they want new, ref new refineries and drilling in the National Arctic Wildlife Reserve. That is on the list. Um, <laughs> the point is this. Even though the disaster was created by this collision between a systematic neglect of the public sphere and our addiction to fossil fuels, the crisis was immediately and shamelessly and unhesitatingly embraced and harnessed to push for more of the same to use public money for more of the same, more drilling, more deregulation, more privatization. Um, now, I was in New Orleans uh, when this was happening. Um, and and the, I have to tell you, the excitement, the palpable excitement among the lobbyists in Baton Rouge uh, was a little hard to bear. Um, I mean, I kept interview, I interviewed a lot of lobbyists, uh, as well as a lot of people working for the Baton Rouge government who kept talking about what a wonderful opportunity this was. Um, they were coming up with their, their wish list. I quote a lot of them in the book. I was there when Richard Baker, a Republican congressman in Baton Rouge, made the mistake of telling a journalist, we finally cleaned up the public housing in New Orleans. We couldn't do it, but God did it. Now, I can tell you that did not go over very well in the housing shelters. Um, and you know, there was so much rage at this idea that it was somehow a gift, that, that God was being invoked. And I have to say, Obama's pastor got in a lot of trouble for using this kind of language about 9-11. And very few people remembered that there were a lot of people on the Christian right who said that Katrina was a message from God. And they didn't get into any trouble at all, if I recall. This was also secular. It wasn't just religious. There was, uh, it, there was also the religion of the market. Uh, Joseph Canizzaro, who is one of New Orleans' wealthiest developers, uh, told the Wall Street Journal, I think we have a clean sheet to start again. And with that clean sheet, we have some very big opportunities. Now, I have to tell you, you know, 
I think that when we look at this, if we look really hard at this, we have to look back. <laughs> you know, we have to look at, in some ways we have to look at the founding of this country. Because this imagining a, a disaster as a clean sheet, I think it goes very deep within our collective psyche. And I think it is the failure in so many ways to confront our history. In New Orleans, they talk about a country built by stolen people on stolen land. People in New Orleans know their history. <laughs> and, you know, as I have been researching the roots of disaster capitalism, I've been reading some academic works about the way in which the early settlers of the United States welcomed diseases, welcomed the smallpox epidemics as God's will, divine plagues that cleared the land of their indigenous inhabitants. And it was God's will that that land be given over to the settlers. So this idea of welcoming disasters for their cleansing powers is a very old one. Uh, and I, I do have this feeling that we're not actually going to be able to confront this unless we go deep in our history. You know, shock is a loss of story. You know, I've been using this, uh, this phrase shock fairly loosely, but you know, what shock is, is a gap that opens up between an event and our ability to understand that event. We start spiraling and we regress. The most shock-resistant people in the world are the people who know their history. And I was struck, you know, being in New Orleans a week after the levees broke, so many of the community organizers were predicting absolutely everything that happened because they know their history. And, you know, I've seen this in many parts of the world, that it's indigenous communities who are most rooted, who are actually most resistant to these tactics. It's people who don't know their history, who are most easily exploited in those moments of shock. And I always think it's so interesting that after September 11th, the Bush administration essentially declared history over, right? Now, we wanted to fill in that shock. Uh, we wanted to fill in the gaps of our knowledge. We wanted to read history. We wanted to talk to our friends. We wanted to, we wanted to know more so that we could get oriented and not be so easy to be led. Um, but we were told that the very process of looking at history, of trying to understand where those attacks came from, was to sympathize with the terrorists, was to rationalize the attacks, was to be on the side of the terrorists. So it wasn't just a war on terror that was declared by this administration, it was a war on history. That was all pre-9-11 thinking, right? We were brand new, day one. And we had new narratives now, like the clash of civilizations. Um, so history is important, was the moral of that little digression. Um, so being in New Orleans when this happened, um, you know, I sometimes compare it, and I don't mean to be flip, but, you know, to an extreme city makeover, uh, that this, you know, this idea that, that the hurricane had, had blanked the slate, and now you could build your sort of perfect dream city. You know, in some ways, that's the narrative that we play out in our entertainment every night. That's the sort of plot of almost every reality show on television. It's like, okay, we're just throwing out everything you own and we're bulldozing your house and you can go away um, on vacation or just be completely passive and we're gonna totally remake you. So we're constantly reliving this narrative of total blanking and reinvention. It is you know, a national form of entertainment or a global form of entertainment. But I think that that was part of the reason why this idea was so seductive in New Orleans. We'll just blank the city and start over. But what was built in the rubble was this corporate city. 
And the most dramatic example being there was, was, was seeing Blackwater driving around, playing the role of the local police. And there was so much confusion. None of us understood, you know, what in the world is Blackwater doing here? I was there with my friend Jeremy Scahill, who ended up uh, asking some very tough questions, and that led to his fantastic book, Blackwater. Um, but there was, that was a chaos, and in that window of chaos, Blackwater just moved in. And um, all the responses was according to the same theory, that, you know, that there was something wrong with the investing in the public sphere and rebuilding the public housing, in giving people vouchers for rental apartments. And so instead, they brought in carnival cruise ships. I mean, do you remember this? It was that crazy. They bought it, brought in carnival cruise ships. They gave $3.4 billion uh, to a lot of the big contractors like Bechtel and Floor that were just back from Iraq. Now, the reason I dwell on this is because, you know, so often we use this word incompetence to describe the Bush administration. And, you know, when it comes to governing, sure, they're incompetent. I'm just not sure that's their main goal. Because <laughs> um, when you walk around New Orleans today, what you don't see is incompetence. What you see is that the city has been rebuilt exactly as the disaster capitalists told us they wanted it rebuilt. Smaller, wider, more hotels, fewer housing projects. In fact, as we speak, 500 units of public housing are being demolished. Uh, many of them were barely damaged, if it damaged at all, by the storm. At the same time, there's an explosion of homelessness in New Orleans, an explosion of homelessness. People aren't in the Superdome anymore, they're living under bridges and in shanty towns. Uh, many of the public schools have not been rebuilt. There is now a move to introduce those vouchers, they're calling them scholarships, but that is moving forward. At the same time, New Orleans is, according to the New York Times, the country's leading laboratory for charter schools. Um, before New Orleans, there were seven charter schools, sorry, before, before Katrina, there were seven charter schools in New Orleans. There are 40, and seven more are planned for next year. So it's, an ex it's a very, very large experiment. Half the students in New Orleans are now going to charter schools. And, you know, I think that the irony of this, really, is that for those who support charter schools, and I know there's a lot of great examples of good charter schools, the reason why people support them, certainly the reason why progressives support them, is because they give parents and teachers more power, more self-determination. But of course, this is the opposite. This is exactly the opposite of that theory, because what was done is that when the parents and the teachers and students weren't even in their city, the teachers union was broken and their schools were converted. So, you know, the rhetoric of empowerment and self-determination really cannot be used in this case. Um, there's looser regulation, labor regulation, which means that contractors are overwhelmingly hiring migrant workers from Central America. And there are several stories, just harrowing stories, of migrant workers complaining about not being paid wages that are owed to them, uh, and their bosses retaliating by telling them that they've called the INS and the police are on the way. Um, and there's a... a uh, a framing in New Orleans, uh, in, in the activist scene in New Orleans, where people talk about the old slaves being pitted against the new slaves, uh, because of course that is happening, and they're referring to the to, to the migrant workers. Charity Hospital uh, was the major health facility treating the uninsured in New Orleans. It's still closed. Uh, the number of beds available for the uninsured in the city has gone from 550 to 200 
despite the fact that they are in the midst of a massive mental health crisis. Um, now, we often hear that you know, these facilities were rotten anyway, and there's lots of truth to that. Um, they, they were, <laughs> Charity Hospital was, uh, the, the housing projects were. Uh, but the point is that billions of public money was released in the name of reconstructing New Orleans, and there was a moment where the people who used those facilities, who lived there, could have imagined and participated in the process of building the best public schools in the country and the most enlightened, greenest, safest housing projects. Um, but they were never asked. And that, you know, that's fundamentally what this is about. This is about democracy and a deep violation of democracy. Um, I, I mentioned that I've been in Iraq, and you know, one of the things that, that those of us who were in New Orleans who had also been in Iraq felt was deja vu. Um, not just because of Blackwater and Halliburton and Bechtel and the whole gang showing up there instantly, right? Um, but it, re it really did feel like the green zone had almost like lifted up from the Tigris and landed on the bayou, which we were all commenting on the, at the time. Um, you know, I've talked about these disaster zones as laboratories, and Iraq is really a another very powerful example. It's another case where we're always talking about how it's a disaster and, and, and Bush administration incompetence. It's also another example where we have to ask disaster for who. You know, who is this not working for? It's not working for Iraqis. Uh, it's not working for American taxpayers. It's not working for American soldiers. Um, but it is working for these contractors. And more than that, the worse things get in Iraq, the more privatized the war becomes. And the numbers on this are absolutely dramatic. Um, I'm just going to throw out a few numbers very quickly. I don't like bombarding people with numbers. But um, when, during the first Gulf War, the first Gulf War, not this one, um, in 89, there was one contractor for every 100 US soldier. Okay. At the beginning of this war, under Rumsfeld's privatization vision, there was one contractor for every 10 US soldiers. Today, there are more contractors than soldiers. There are 180,000 contractors. And there are around 160,000 troops in Iraq. So you know, as things have gotten worse, what there has been is a kind of a core, you know, we, we talk about military mission creep, when the mission expands and expands. What there's been in Iraq is a corporate mission creep. Um, because the worse things get, the more tasks these private contractors take over. When I was in Iraq, the green zone was protected by US soldiers. But now, it's protected by private mercenary soldiers. Um, so it is a laboratory. It's a laboratory for corporate government. Um, you know, and this is something that I think people really don't understand about the green zone. The green zone is not just a US uh, embassy. Um, it's not just a, a U.S. space. It is a city run by Halliburton. Um, absolutely everything in the city is privatized. And it really is a city within a city. And, uh, and, and so these companies have learned things and done things in Iraq that they've never done before. They've taken on functions that they've never taken on before, like prisoner interrogation and things like that. And this has... this. Has, this kind of war, this corporate war, has already come home. Because, of course, these profits, these profits that were earned in Iraq and continue to be earned in Iraq, are addictive. But the contractors are well aware that Iraq's not going to go on forever, that this war isn't going to go on forever. And so they've been diversifying. And 
Um, there's been a major push in what I call the disaster capitalism complex to uh, get into the border control business. And you know, we see this with something like the so-called virtual fence on the border with Mexico, which is a $2.5 billion contract for Boeing. Um, you also have a lot of companies that are pushing for biometric identification cards, which is another huge industry. Um, pushing for more private prisons. Halliburton got a contract to build private prisons to hold uh, a sudden influx of immigrants. Um, and so they're looking for new markets. And what we're seeing is increasingly is privatized responses uh, to disasters. And, you know, when it happened in New Orleans, it was, all called, it was all a mistake, right? The fact that the rich people could get out and the poor people were stuck. But now, that dynamic is being institutionalized. A year after, uh, after Katrina hit, um, there, a new company launched in Florida called HelpJet. And it advertises that they will turn your hurricane into a luxury vacation. It works on the country club model, i.e. you pay a, a membership fee, an annual membership fee. And if a hurricane, and this is not a joke, I mean, this is, it's hard to parody this stuff because it, they catch up to you. Um, and uh, and, and they, they, they'll be your sort of disaster valet. They'll book your five-star vacation, Disney World, wherever. Um, and um, and they, are, they, they advertise that you can escape the lines and so on. Um, I call this rapture rescue, by the way, um, in the sense that, you know, we talk a lot about how people in this administration think the apocalypse is coming and the hand of God is going to come save them and their friends and everybody else will be left behind. And they watch movies starring Kirk Cameron with that theme. Um, but, I mean, what really concerns me is that they're not waiting for God's hand, right? They're actually enacting this down here. Um, and... Uh, and HelpJet really epitomizes that. During the California wildfires, there was a uh, AIG, the huge insurance company AIG, was the only company that offered the residents of living in the, in the wealthiest areas of California. They offered them uh, a special service, which was privatized fi private firefighters who came to the houses um, as the fires were burning and sprayed them with fire retardant. Uh, and this was such a wonderful service that everybody who wasn't an AIG uh, uh, member called their insurance companies and said, why didn't we get this special service? And now there are five insurance companies, this just came out last week, who are offering this special service only in the wealthiest areas. So, you know, what are people paying taxes for if not for fire protection? Um, now, Eisenhower... Uh, warned, of course, about the dangers of the military-industrial complex. He devoted his last speech to warning that a powerful constituent was developing in the American economy that had an incentive for war, that had an incentive for war, and that that creates a threat to democracy. He felt so strongly about it that that, that was his last speech. Um, now, what, you know, so what I'm describing here is not new, but the scale of it is so much larger uh, than what he was describing. It's not just a few weapons companies and a few engineering companies. Now, it, thanks to Rumsfeld, the treating of U.S. troops, the treating of U.S. troops when they come home, ravaged by war, is a massive industry and is part of the reason why uh, companies like HealthNet the, uh, have soaring profits this year. 17% of their profits come from the military. Um, so. This economy is going on, and we're not talking about it because 
And I have a theory about this, which is, you know, in the 90s, with the dot-com boom, we got really used to new economies declaring themselves with great fanfare and bragging about how rich they are, right? And a sort of culture of, you know, just fetishizing like the new CEOs posing next to their private jets. And the thing about disaster capitalists is they may have dot-com levels of wealth, but they have CIA levels of discretion. They understand they should not brag about their new private jets. Um, and so we're, we're just still expecting that they will brag. Um, and so this new economy of privatized surveillance, privatized border control, uh, warfare reconstruction, uh, privatized disaster response has exploded, and we're not talking about it as a new economy, and talking about the impact and the threat it poses to our democracy. And we need to. Now, one of the other reasons why I um, talk about New Orleans um, is because, you know, in New Orleans, when, when this was happening, you know, for the first two years, people would often say, what is happening to us will happen to you. And they really see themselves as the canary in the coal mine. Uh, that, this, that this collision between heavy weather and weak infrastructure is going to repeat itself. And even if there isn't some kind of a natural disaster involved, this process that New Orleans went through in fast forward, this fast forward attack on, on, on everything in the public sphere, is happening everywhere else in the country in slower motion. Uh, so what people in New Orleans talk about is, is, you know, this isn't just about us, this is about you. Now, of course, they're right. And the subprime mortgage crisis is a Katrina without the water. It's a Katrina without the water. Two million homeowners facing foreclosure on their homes. Now, in New Orleans, as in New Orleans, it's the poorest homeowners, overwhelmingly African-American, who are getting hit hardest. This economic crisis is the greatest loss of wealth for people of color in modern history. Katrina without the water. Now, there are other similarities with New Orleans in the sense that, just like in New Orleans, it's the same people who made the mess who now want the public money to bail them out, uh, for the, bail out their banks, their development companies, their building companies, and so on. Now, I was struck by something else on this trip to New Orleans, which is something that I hadn't really thought about before, which is that a lot of what is under attack in that city, uh, which was so neglected for years before and the hurricane was just used to finish the job, so much of what is under threat was built in the years after another economic crisis, after the Great Depression, as part of the New Deal. That is really what is under siege in New Orleans and is under siege across the country. Now, this isn't new, but I really do think it, it bears thinking about, in particular, in this moment. Charity Hospital, which I mentioned earlier, uh, which hasn't been reopened, and there's actually a really important lawsuit going on with a group of former patients and former doctors who are suing uh, the state, demanding that it be reopened. That hospital was the largest uh, WPA project in Louisiana, and it was built based on a simple idea that no person should be denied health care because they're poor. All those housing projects that are being demolished, that are facing demolition, um, those came out of the same era, out of the U.S. Housing Act of 1937. 
And it was also based on a simple idea, that decent housing is a human right. And this came out of the experience of the Great Depression, of seeing so many people slip through the cracks, losing faith in the idea that the market will solve everything for us, and demanding not laissez-faire government, but fair government, government that will do. Um, now, I think it is, I think in this particular moment, it really is useful to think back uh, at, about what the conditions were that made those kinds of huge progressive projects possible. Uh, because I think there is a feeling right now uh, that, yes, we know what we're up against and it's overwhelming, but we don't know how to change it. And so I, what, what I felt on this trip to New Orleans is, you know, I was reminded of, of a time uh, not so unlike our own, when progressives didn't panic in the face of a shock, in the face of a crisis. And they didn't leave the solutions to the experts. They made bold proposals for a better world. It was the left that was ready with its ideas, that had its ideas lying around. Uh, and, and it resulted uh, in the social security system that Bush has so far failed to dismantle, uh, and so much of what we've been discussing. Uh, but the response from progressives was huge union drives, huge public works, full employment, demands for full employment. So let's think about what it was that the progressives of that era uh, drew on uh, in building those incredible movements. The first thing they drew on was the evident failures of deregulated capitalism. I mean, that, that is what the depression, the market crash of 1929, represented. Um, but also, they drew on their unshakable conviction that their alternatives would put an end to the logic that had pushed so many people into poverty so dramatically. And they declared an end to laissez-faire capitalism. It was actually Keynes who declared the end of laissez-faire a few years earlier. Um, but it came true after that. Uh, and they had this crazy idea, which was that since the Wall Street financiers had created the crisis, in their opinion, um, that de facto disqualified them from solving it. Um, <laughs> it's a good idea. Um, there was something else that they had that I think is very relevant on this day uh, in Pittsburgh when you have been visited by, by so many candidates and their relatives, um, <laughs> which is that the progressives of that era uh, did not think it was enough just to get their candidate into office. They knew that they had to organize an independent progressive movement, many independent progressive movements, to be a counterpower to the business lobby that was pushing frantically and aggressively from the other side. They understood that there was a power dynamic and that they had to play, okay? So yes, FDR brought in the New Deal, but he did so under enormous and continuous pressure from a mobilized grassroots. Now at the time, progressives organized in unions, consumer groups, student groups, were actually making demands that were much more radical than the New Deal. They thought the New Deal was the biggest sellout they'd ever heard because they wanted single-payer health care. Uh, Upton Sinclair had a meeting with FDR where he said, you're never going to deal with unemployment, just with charity, just with these handouts that you're doing all over the place. You need to let, give people the tools to build workers' cooperatives coast to coast. 
That's what he wanted, okay? And what's interesting to me about this is, yes, they were taking advantage of a crisis. But it was the opposite of the spirit of disaster capitalism, which is taking advantage of the fact that people are scared and frightened and demobilized to make decisions for them. They were bringing more people, educating more people into the process. Disaster populism or disaster collectivism. Um, so the New Deal was a compromise. It was a compromise between the forces that were coming from business and this enormous pressure that was coming from the, from the grassroots. Um, I think it's also helpful to remember this because it reminds us that history is cyclical. It reminds us that unfortunately, yes, it goes in waves. Uh, and for the past 30 years, we have been living a backlash against the New Deal and projects like it. But the mood is turning and the climate is right for big, bold, creative thinking and solutions again. The time is right. And I have to tell you, if we don't fill that vacuum, someone else will. That's what's dangerous. And it's also something that Keynes understood all too well. He understood that if progressives don't fill this gap, fascism will. And that's what he warned about after the Treaty of Versailles, and he predicted the rise of fascism in Germany. So we can't be complacent. We can't take a laissez-faire attitude and just imagine people will rise up. No, you organize. That's how you do it. Um, I also think we need, to, we need to think about this history because there is this danger of thinking that all we have to do is get the right candidate in power, when in fact that is only the smallest beginning. Um, now, the disaster capitalists are equal opportunity, all right? They're not just funding John McCain. I want to read to you the list of Hillary Clinton's top contributors. Number two, Goldman Sachs. Number three, Citigroup. Number four, Morgan Stanley. Number six, Lehman Brothers. Number seven, J.P. Morgan Chase. Number 16, Merrill Lynch. Number 19, Bear Stearns. Um, Obama. Obama people, don't get too excited. Number one, Goldman Sachs. Number four, J.P. Morgan. Number five, Lehman Brothers. Number six, Citigroup. Number 16, Morgan Stanley. Number 20, Citadel Investment, Chicago company. Um, now, it starts to make a little bit more sense why we aren't hearing bolder proposals from them in the face of the mortgage crisis, uh, in the face of this mass eviction from people's homes, why we're only hearing generalities. It also makes sense why neither of them is dwelling on the outrageous corporate welfare that has taken place in the name of reconstruction in New Orleans or Iraq. The weapons and reconstruction companies, the ones that profit most from the continued presence in Iraq, have been getting nervous about the prospect of the Republicans losing power in November. And for the first time in 14 years, the defense industry is giving more to the Democrats than to the Republicans. <laughs> giving more to the Democrats, 52% of donations to the Democrats. Hillary Clinton has received more money from defense contractors than any other candidate, including McCain. Obama hasn't received as much, but he's received plenty. Now, I think this also might make a little bit of sense of the fact that neither Hillary nor Obama have plans for a actual withdrawal of all troops from Iraq. Both of them would leave the green zone intact. And let me tell you, you cannot leave the green zone intact 
without a massive troop presence because the Iraqis see the green zone as an occupation. Now, if a foreign power came to Washington, D.C. and said, we want, a, we want an embassy, but we want the embassy to be in the White House. We're taking the White House, um, and we're taking the Vietnam War Memorial and DuPont Circle, and we're going to build a massive wall around it. Um, but it's not an occupation. I think we might say otherwise. Now, from the corporate perspective, these campaign donations are peanuts, okay? From the campaign's perspective, they are significant. Uh, but the companies are just doing a cost-benefit analysis, right? I mean, they are making an investment now to safeguard, of, of, of a few hundred thousand to safeguard millions in profits later. So it's useful to know what we're up against. Um, and the reason for this is not to feel hopeless, because I actually don't believe that donations are destiny. I don't believe that. You know, I think we can draw these lines, but I, you know, I, I think politicians can change if they're forced to. <laughs> um, and, um, but I think the point is, is that the companies who are making these donations aren't just making them and hoping for the best. They are making them and making very concrete policy demands to go with it, right? And we need to do the same. We can't just be super fans, okay? Um, we need to have very concrete demands. And so the real question is, which candidate do you think, and I'm not answering this for you, will be most susceptible to pressure from an organized progressive constituency that wants an immediate end to the occupation of Iraq, that demands serious action on climate change, that wants to see the $12 billion a month spent on war funneled into public works at home. Because make no mistake, if we don't demand these things, they will not happen. Laissez-faire doesn't work in the economy, and the financial markets have just taught us that, but it doesn't work in politics either. There aren't any shortcuts. Um, we can't just delegate this work to politicians. The disaster capitalists are organized and focused. If we want to challenge their bleak, apocalyptic vision of the world, one in which every new crisis is an opportunity to segregate us further into red zones and green zones, we have to la tackle their logic head on. So the good news is this. When we work for peace and, and environmental sustainability, we don't just end senseless killing abroad, take our planet off its disastrous course, and free up money to invest in people. We take away their market. Because without a steady stream of crises and disasters, the disaster capitalists are out of a job. Thank you. You've been listening to Overheard on WRCT Pittsburgh. The lecture tonight was Naomi Klein, author of No Logo and the Shock Doctrine, lecturing on the rise of disaster capitalism. The lecture was recorded in McConomy Auditorium on the Carnegie Mellon campus on Monday, April 14th, 2008.